There's a familiar face returning to USDA, but how might this time at the agency helm be different? And how is the pandemic changing consumer eating habits, and could that be an opportunity for your farm? Welcome to Around Farm Progress, a weekly podcast that looks at agriculture issues across the country. I'm Willie Vogt, your host and editorial director for Farm Progress. At USDA, some may be thinking of that old song by The Who, Won't Be Fooled Again, which has the line, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. For them, the new boss is Tom Vilsack, who is slated to return to the role of Secretary of Agriculture if confirmed by the Senate. He is a known commodity for ag policy, but his role may be a bit different in the Biden-Harris administration. Jackie Fatka, policy editor, Farm Progress, talks about what she sees for Vilsack in his return to the role. And we take a look at how the pandemic may be changing consumer eating habits with the help of Michael Utz, who's a principal at Maiden Marketing, a firm that focuses on the meat industry and marketing opportunities there. They've been conducting monthly consumer surveys, and Utz shares some insights from that work, including the latest results of that survey. First up, let's get some perspective on the news about Tom Vilsack. Well, Jackie, I want to welcome you back to Around Farm Progress. Um, We're talking today about a familiar figure in this new Biden-Harris administration, um, and, and someone who's making a little history by coming back into the same role again after leaving it a few years ago, and that would, of course, be sec- the new um, appointed Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack, familiar name. But you just wrote a column about what might be different about his new tenure at USDA. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, thanks so much for having me today, Willie. It's always fun to talk policy. Um, And and this week, some big news with uh, Tom Vilsack coming back to USDA, assuming he gets confirmed, but we're pretty sure that'll be an easy easy route since he did it for eight years under the Obama administration. Um, And yeah, I think Vilsack will um, provide some predictability for farmers. Um, You know, they, they do know what they're getting, but I do think he'll have some some new priorities and um, his four years at the Dairy Export Council, I think will position him well for that. Um, and and I've actually sat and listened to him quite a few times um, over the last couple of years with a group called, um, uh, it was a um, Focus on Rural America was the name of the group um, with former Iowa Lieutenant Governor Patty Judge. Um, but, you know, he was often on those calls with her, um, advocating on behalf of ethanol, um, on the importance of rural America, and and really trying to get Democrats to pay attention to some of the things that, uh, you know, as a Democrat, he uh, is obviously maybe not as, um, you know, some of the issues in rural America are um, often characterized with a Republican viewpoint, but, you know, Democrats uh, have, have kind of looked looked elsewhere. And so he, you know, in his work on the focus on rural America um, was really trying to make sure that some of those issues were were well well understood. Um, and and I think he'll be a great advocate for agriculture when it comes to speaking uh, with President-elect uh, Joe Biden as he uh, comes into this this new era. Well, I think he'd be a good voice, too. Um, in the, There's a progressive caucus in the House. We know this. Um, they are advocating the Green New Deal, and I don't want to bring up the too much, but there are some pieces of that that need a little bit of airing out. And I think perhaps uh, uh, appointed Secretary Vilsack, I guess that's what we'll call him, um, might be able to have those conversations with that caucus and say, no, here's how 
we can do this with carbon. Here's how we can do this to help with this uh, extreme climate issue we're trying to deal with, right? Right. And, you know, I think I, I said this a couple of months ago, and, and now that um, assuming every, I think all the all of the court challenges are done, but we're going to call Biden the, 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 the incoming, incoming president-elect, you know, climate is a huge focus for the Biden administration. Um, you don't have to look much further than the fact that one of his first nominees that he named was John Kerry as a special presidential envoy for climate. Um, and so we, it, it, as you look at a cabinet, and in many ways, you know, you look at who is that close circle of advisors to the president. And the fact that we have Vilsack now at that table, um, and Vilsack is very supportive of making sure that um, that any actions um, when it comes to climate policy, that they that they are an opportunity for farmers to actually make money, not be required to pay more money. And so, you know, he gets that. He understands that. And he is going to make sure that whatever happens is not going to cost more. Um, and and he realizes that there are a lot of opportunities to really um, you know, add more value for farmers, as well as some actions that improve the environment. You know, it's a win-win. And um, he was one of the uh, witnesses a couple years ago when the Senate was starting to work. Senate says, uh, Senate uh, Agricultural Committee Ranking Member Debbie Stabenow and her Growing Climate Solutions Act, which was some of that initial work to help uh pay farmers for what they're doing. And also a big part of her bill is actually enlisting USDA and NRCS to help verify, quantitate, um, and, and, and really help bring in USDA, which is a trusted government agency for farmers to help bridge that, uh, that gap of um, making sure that, that it comes together. And so, I mean, I think the dairy industry is one of the poster child, the poster children of of um, sustainability and and some of their goals for net zero emissions in the next um, 20 years. I think it's 2030, maybe as their uh, 2030 or 2050 uh, is their net zero emissions goals. And you know they're very forward thinking. And um, Vilsack has spent the last four years. Um, understanding that, making sure there's research for that. And so I think he's going to bring a, a real um, depth of knowledge into that discussion on climate and how farming and the farming community and, and producers fit within this discussion. You know, it's a, and it's a much more complicated discussion than a lot of people think. Um, uh, if you're an outsider to agriculture, you're pretty sure that yeah, we got this all figured out. We just got to get rid of this or get rid of that. And in fact, agriculture has so many opportunities to help with this whole net zero movement. Uh, Google, Microsoft, major tech companies have made these significant commitments and they've got to lay off carbon somewhere. And it's more than cover crops. We're talking renewable natural gas from methane. We're talking uh, electric implements on the farm that means that this wine grape was produced with no carbon. I mean, there's things that we can do out here that can make a real big difference in agriculture. Um, and he can be a voice for that. And, and a good voice. And, you know, yeah. it was, 
Um, I, I always love talking with farmers um, and my favorite farmer is my dad. Um, and, and last night, you know, we were, we always, we always like to talk about the news, but you know, one of the things, the Paris Accord and, and you and I have talked kind of just off the cuff about this, but you know, there's a lot of thoughts that, well, Biden's going to come in and he's going to cost us $2 trillion uh, to get back into the plan, Paris Common Accord. The reality is there's a $2 trillion um, kind of policy that he is over over all the different things that climate kind of intersects with. And and so really, you know, when it comes to agriculture and what it means, you know, that $2 trillion project is, policy is probably not going to get passed. But, but I do really think here in the next year or two, we're going to see a significant um, movement from this administration, both at the executive um, level as well as the legislative level to try to advance some policies that will probably cost money to limit emissions, to reward those who limit emissions. And so, you know, for agriculture, it's all about making sure that it doesn't cost us more, that maybe we're able to put some money into farmers' pockets because of this. And at the end of the day, maybe we are uh, creating fewer emissions, but maybe we're also storing that carbon in your field so that you have a positive yield boost. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's, it's not just, um, you know, this, this climate discussion has really gotten polarized and it will be interesting to see how that goes forward. But hopefully at the end of the day, we can make sure that it's science-based and I think Vilsack will be a very effective voice to make sure that that is at the center of it. And, you know, sustainability is also about economics for farmers. You can't have a farmer be sustainable if they're no longer farming. And I think that there is a real good understanding of that from Secretary Vilsack himself. Jackie, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. We're looking forward to see this. I, I did do some historical uh, looking back at secretaries of agriculture. You know, we didn't really have a secretary of agriculture until 1889 when we went from being an ag commission commissioner to a secretary of ag as a cabinet position. And um, uh, future secretary Vilsack is uh, the first to ever leave the position after eight years and come back to the position. But the longest serving secretary of ag was, I love this guy, James Tama Jim Wilson, who mm-hmm. served under three presidents, McKinley, Teddy Roosevelt, and William Howard Taft from 1897 to 1913. So um, if Vilsack goes for the full 16 years, that might be a new record, too. We'll see. But it's, <laughs> with two terms, it's interesting. Thanks again for your conversation and uh, keep following policy. Jackie Fecka is the uh, policy editor for Farm Progress, and it's always good to talk to you and uh, stay safe. Thanks so much, Willie. Always great talking with you. We thank Jackie for her insight on the not-so-new guy at USDA, and now we turn our attention to the consumer and how the pandemic has impacted eating habits. In a new monthly survey, Maiden Marketing has found that meat remains at the center of the plate for most consumers, but they want more. Michael Lutz, a principal at the marketing firm, clues us in. Michael Utz from Maiden Marketing. I want to welcome you to Around Farm Progress and hope you're doing well in these uh, complicated times. Doing fairly fairly well, Willie. Thank you for uh, the invitation. Great. Well, a reason I've got you on today is uh, your company, Maiden Marketing. You've actually been doing a series of surveys since COVID-19 hit the hit the industry, but your latest one was kind of interesting in terms of looking at uh, 
restaurants, retail. And I guess the first question I have is, why did you start doing those surveys? What was the benefit of that for your company to look at this part of the business? Well, my marketing has been in operation for about 16 years. Uh, we are a full service marketing communication agency, and all we do is focus on opportunities to support the meat industry. Um, so we, 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 uh, we position ourselves as being champions for the meat industry from livestock producer to consumer. Uh, from the start of the organization, we were very intent on making sure that we were focused on the, what we call the end game. And the end game is consumer demand for our products. When it comes down to uh, uh, anything you're producing, um, in our case, it happens to be meat. If you aren't producing something the consumer wants or uh, something that fits their needs, they're not going to purchase it. And if there's no demand for your product, ultimately, you, you lose the marketplace. And so Maiden's positioning has always been that we were going to be sort of the sounding board for uh, the consumer back to the industry. So we've been tracking consumer sentiment, uh, attitudes, perceptions, behaviors for a long time. And when COVID hit um, and we started seeing significant shifts in the consumer's um, opportunities for meal solutions uh, happen in, in March, we immediately thought, okay, we need to go out and talk to consumers and find out what's going on with them so we can alert the industry about shifts in, in, in uh, their purchase behaviors and some of the things they're concerned about. Uh, we obviously found out that they were incredibly concerned about their food safety. Um, interestingly enough, we were not just calling, we were not just talking about food safety at the time, but we are also talking about food security. And when we talk about security, it was about really about availability. Who'd have thought that toilet paper and meat would have been the two hot commodities in the time of a pandemic? But uh, we started uh, a monthly survey in March, and we've been doing it ever since. And in those surveys, we go out to, to talk to 1,000 consumers, which is representative of the national uh, population. And we ask them questions about how they're feeling, uh, their concerns, and how they're purchasing product. And um, both at, 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 your at their local grocery stores and um, what they're doing relative to uh, their, their uh, restaurant uh, use, whether they're still going to a restaurant, whether they're purchasing through delivery, those types of things. So um, the COVID, what we call our COVID-19 pandemic research is something that uh, we, we have, have watched and have, have developed over time um, as the consumer has evolved through, uh, through this incredible pandemic. Yeah, it is interesting. So I'll ask kind of a basic question I like on this. And why should a farmer care about what you're learning over the last few months in these surveys? You know, we're, we're very intent on making sure that we understand um, that, that, that um, we understand where the product is going. And by talking to consumers, what we're trying to do um, from Maiden is being sort of a conduit of information. So it's important for farmers to understand where their product is going and ultimately what the consumer is looking for when they purchase the product, whether it be on a menu at a restaurant or shopping in the meat case. Um, at the start of the pandemic, the main uh, concern for consumers based on our survey was that they needed to find product and they were looking for whatever product they could and, and, and it resulted in a lot of out of stocks because we just couldn't come up from a supply perspective. Now, however, we're seeing a transition to somewhat back to what we were seeing and tracking before the pandemic in that we, were, um, we, we had a consumer base that was looking more for information about where their product comes from. 
They are paying more attention to what kind of information and in the uh, transparent uh, information they can get about pro uh, the, the way products are produced. Uh, we do a lot of generational tracking from boomers all the way down to what we call Gen Zs, which is the early, or early 20 year olds. And the younger generations in particular have shown an in intent interest on how the product is, uh, is, is produced that they're purchasing. And they're really interested in, in the backstory. And when we talk about backstory, uh, we're talking about exactly what a, a farmer is living every day. It's interesting that um, for a long time, uh, the farmer was always in the background and sort of an afterthought, but today they're literally front and center. They're the headline of the story. And it's the, in, that kind of information about how they care for their animals, um, the uh, caretaking they do natural resources, uh, the way they provide a lifestyle for generations and sustaining a livelihood of rural America that is really what consumers are looking for and what they can relate to. Hmm. That is interesting. And I have seen some other evidence to that effect in terms of a lot of times, too, the, as long as that Gen Z or millennial knows where it comes from, they don't get so wrapped up in some of the hows. I mean, if yeah. they trust that rancher, then they know that rancher is not going to do anything negative because their kids are eating this meat. Is, is that do you see that still as being true or are they starting to get also concerned about maybe products that they might use or things that they do in their process? Well, um, you know, the, the storyline is one thing and, and, and mm -hmm. it's very, but they're also interested in the inputs, um, you know, uh, things like antibiotics and hormones and GMOs and all those kinds of things have been top of mind for consumers for a long time. Uh, historically, consumers really didn't understand what, how those were used in, in livestock production and the implications for those things, but they were being, they were being told that they, they weren't good. Now they're much more likely to, if, if, it, if it's an issue for them, they have the capability of actually going and finding out for themselves. And so that's where the transparency comes in, in production, whether it's on the farm or in a packer processing plant or in the feedlot, or um, you know, what, what, what transpires once it hits a retailer or a food service operation. So they are interested in the inputs uh, as well as um, the uh, the environment of the production process. That's fantastic. And I think farmers need to know that they shouldn't be afraid to tell their story. I mean, to me, nothing's more beautiful than a cow-calf operation in, you know, South Dakota or out west or even in Florida. There's yeah. a good story there, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. The visuals are spectacular and they, they really do make a difference. You know, a lot of people um, think, ah, you know what, that, that, that's just... Uh, that's just a, a, a sort of make-believe kind of thing. But, but I'm, I'm from a cattle ranch in North Dakota. I know what it looks like. The video uh, could be spectacular, the storyline, the visual. That is, that is incredibly important. Um, but also getting down and understanding the, 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 the folks who are on the ground actually caring for the animals and doing the production process, those storylines are incredibly in, uh, important. Um, having access to those folks who can have a conversation about um, the, the passion they have for what they do, the caretaking that they do for their animals. Those storylines um, uh, are, are exactly what the consumer wants to hear about today. Right, and that passion is more than just the owner of the ranch. Many of the ranch hands have the same passion for those animals they're caring for, and I think that's a great part of that story too, absolutely. Mm -hmm. When you're when you're looking at the surveys and you've been doing this for several months now, is anything surprising popped up for you and in, in what you what you've learned at Maiden? You know, there were there were there's always something that's that, right. that, that 
flag as wow, that was really interesting. And, and at the start of the survey, we, we are, I already mentioned this a little bit, but yeah. the fact that um, we were talking about safety and security, there was tremendous concerns. We had um, incredibly high number of, of percentage of the consumers were concerned about COVID. But in addition, they were also concerned about their own safety and the, the security of the supply of products that they were going to get now from a grocery store because restaurants shut down. So um, we found that more than a third of consumers still in our September survey were saying that they were stockpiling meat. <laughs> so we think about the fact that we are now having a resurgence of COVID. A lot of, a lot of cases, the numbers were up all over the country again. Consumers are still concerned and we still have that stockpiling mentality, uh, the need to make sure that they're gonna have food on their table, not having to uh, go into grocery stores and, um, and uh, potentially expose themselves to an unsafe situation. Um, which leads into one of the, the, the other uh, pretty significant findings that we had was that 53% of consumers said that they have purchased meat or chicken online since the beginning of the pandemic. Now, prior to the pandemic, Willie, we were struggling as an industry to play into the, the, uh, the growing interest in consumers buying online. Um, talk, you know, we, we've all mm -hmm. watched the growth of Amazon and other online uh, uh, opportunities for consumers, but meat and honestly, meat and produce were the two categories within the grocery store that consumers really didn't want to, to uh, chance getting online, having it delivered, because they really like to pick their own out. We've seen a, almost a complete turnaround in that today. And it started with the, uh, the, the, the need to just get the product and not being able to go into the store, not feeling comfortable going into the store. So retailers immediately established platforms where you could order online, either on an app or on your computer, and you could either go and pick it up in a click and collect uh, format at the grocery store, or they would actually deliver. And through that process, initially there were, there were you know, we, we actually had uh, consumers rate their satisfaction with the, the meat product that they got delivered in those kind of formats. And we've seen the satisfaction rates grow significantly over time to where a majority of the consumers today in fact, 75% say that they are very satisfied with the product that they get on a delivery platform and, and, and also from a pickup and or takeout from a restaurant. So the numbers are really high. The uh, performance is, is pretty stellar. And we've also learned through our research that a third of consumers said that even after the pandemic is over or sort of out of the woods on it, they still plan to continue to order their meat online rather than going in a grocery store and, and picking it up. So when you talk about ordering meat online, I think part of what you explained was more of a retail situation. I'm ordering it from Hy-Vee or I'm ordering it from Kroger's mm -hmm. or whatever. But we also have an opportunity, right, to be direct sale in the meat industry. It, it, does this open that door even better? Because before you'd kind of try and sell on Facebook and you'd have some regional pickup. But mm -hmm. now people aren't maybe you think consumers are a little less afraid. Maybe they'd buy from a certain beef operation if they could buy it directly. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We're seeing all kinds of online opportunities just um, uh, escalate in, in uh, volume uh, compared to what they were. We, we're seeing a lot of startups as well. Um, you know, there, there is the um, online opportunity through retail. There's the online opportunity through restaurants. Um, but there's also what we call a, a DDC or direct-to-consumer, and that includes the, the, uh, the Omaha Steaks, the Butcher Box, the Crowd Cows, um, those folks, um, Omaha Steaks has been around forever and have done a phenomenal job of providing high quality, um, tremendous product to consumers 
on a direct to consumer, a direct -to -consumer basis. However, um, th th they didn't have a, a large part of the population that had any interest in doing that unless it was a very special occasion and they, they figured it was a high cost item, uh, something they were gonna do very occasionally and it had to be uh, some sort of a celebratory event. Today, we, continue, we uh, have reached out and talked to a lot of those companies on a regular basis, the, the uh, direct-to-consumer companies, and we found that their numbers um, yeah, skyrocketed in sales over the course of, of uh, COVID, and they're not dipping much at this stage of the game either. So we think that they've attracted a new base of consumers who are now comfortable with shopping for meat online, and that they're going to be able to retain a lot of those customers even after COVID is done because they become very accustomed and comfortable with shopping for meat that way. And it, uh, it, it, it's something they're gonna uh, be uh, including in their, in their meal solution opportunities in the future. So I was looking at this latest survey data, which triggered me into talking to you today. And one of the things I found interesting and as someone who cooks um, and I uh, am not afraid to cook anything really, was that there was some consumer concern or they wanted to go to restaurants because they weren't comfortable cooking things. And my favorite was of course, both steak and fried chicken, which by the way, are two extremely easy things to cook, but to, in my mind, but it was surprising that was in the survey too. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, I, I, I would say that I'm, I'm, I'm a, uh, a uh, poster child for, for that and that I didn't do a lot of cooking prior to COVID, but I've become actually a, 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 a fairly good cook at this point, I'm trying a lot of different things. I do a lot of takeout, but I also like to cook at home. We saw a lot of consumers um, decide that they needed to hunker down and become uh, better cooks. Um, as you can imagine, and you, live, you have lived through it like I did, Willie, in that you've got to plan three meals a day, seven days a week. And if you're not getting something that's already prepared, uh, you need to create something. And we found that consumers in general um, had to lean into that and be more creative. Um, that what they missed about uh, eating out was the social aspect and the ethnic cuisine. And, and yeah, the specific call-outs that they missed the most were, interestingly enough, steaks, fried chicken, and ethnic dishes. Mm. Uh, one, in, one in three consumers said that they've tried a new uh, restaurant since the beginning, but we also have seen that um, there's a significant amount of consumers, 50% in fact, who said that they've not eaten inside a restaurant since the beginning of the pandemic. So they're cooking all their meals at home. And um, one of the things that we as an industry need to, 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 to start considering is how can we play into giving them new ideas, um, uh, providing a lot of variety. And uh, the, the, the ethnic cuisine had been a growing trend in food in general long before the pandemic. And we need to continue to figure out how we become not only center of the plate, but also how we um, as an animal protein can work into ingredient and side dish opportunities so that we continue to be a part of every single meal that's, that uh, consumers looking for. Well, yeah, and that's important too. I mean, your survey showed that many of the consumers, and they were meat-eating consumers. I want to be clear on this, mm -hmm. that that the, you weren't surveying vegetarians, but these folks were um, keeping meat in the center of the plate, which is exciting from that standpoint. Mm -hmm. Do you think if I was a direct-to-consumer uh, marketer of meat that maybe I shouldn't just send you a stack of steaks? Maybe I should send you a stack of steaks with a set of recipes? Absolutely, absolutely. I don't know if you've received it, if you uh, have been a customer of any of those um, organizations, uh, Willie, but they've actually upped their game as well. Mm -hmm. um, I've said a lot of them, and it's pretty impressive when I get one of those boxes and I open it up. And there oftentimes is a handwritten note of thanks 
could be from the actual producer of the animal uh, product that you have in your in your box because you buy by uh, producer, rancher, farmer, uh, specifically in some in some cases. Um, there will be recipe ideas. There will be uh, uh, indicators of how to go to their website to find out ways to to, to uh, actually prepare products. Um, if it's a whole muscle, they give in information on how to grill or cook um, either on top of the stove or in the in in the uh, oven. Um, they also give you ideas of leftovers, and and so they've been incredibly creative in providing helpful information on how to be successful in preparing their product, given they know that you're making a pretty significant investment in that product. So essentially, the pandemic may have created an excellent opportunity for meat producers to reach the consumer in new ways and also to maybe even play in the retail market in different ways as well, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think so. That's fantastic. Well, Michael Utz from Mind Marketing, it's been fantastic talking to you today on Around Farm Progress. I'll be looking for future surveys. Who knows? We, we may be talking again. Thank you for your time today, and you have a great day, and stay safe. All right. Thanks, Willie. You as well. Appreciate the time. Thanks to Michael Utz from Maiden Marketing for that fascinating look at how the pandemic has impacted consumers. The good news is they still want meat in their diets, and I'm pretty sure most of you listeners find that to be a grand idea. And thanks to Jackie Fatka for her perspective on the appointment of Tom Vilsack to return as Secretary of Agriculture. You've been listening to Around Farm Progress, our weekly look at agriculture across the United States with editors from the Farm Progress team and experts in our industry. Farm Progress is the nation's leading agriculture information source with 17 state and regional brands, as well as Farm Futures, Beef, National Hog Farmer, and Feedstuffs, and the new Farm Progress Virtual Experience. If you didn't tune in for the premiere of the Farm Progress Virtual Experience, you can still visit the site to see more. Just visit farmprogressshow.com for a direct connection to the virtual event. And while it's rich with field demonstration content, I would also recommend checking out the trade show experience where you can search hundreds of exhibitors by name or by specific product category. Join us next week as we continue our agriculture journey around the country. I'm Willie Vogt, Editorial Director at Farm Progress. Thanks for listening.